Welcome in everybody to the deep dive. My name is Tim. I'm the host of this channel and I'm so glad that you are here. We did not do the deep end this week, but we are doing the deep dive. Why? Because this season so far has been far more deep end than deep dive and we need to get through some text if we're going to complete our study of first and second Kings. And that's right. We are in the Kings of Compromise. It is part 11. We are in first Kings chapter 11. And so let me open us up in prayer while you subscribe to the channel, and then we will get started. Father, thank you for the chance to hear your word and study it, and I pray that my words will be what, they, what you want them to be and will be helpful to your people. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's get started. One of the uh, most common temptations in the world is sexual immorality, and we are going to learn today that it was the last straw or you could say the straw that broke the camel's back in Solomon's ridiculously powerful, glorious, and rich kingdom. First Kings chapter 11 is the demise, the demise of Solomon. All that we have studied up until this moment in First Kings, think about it, 10 chapters now in, and we have only begun to see the cracks in the armor here of, first, of King Solomon, this ancient, wise, powerful, rich uh, probably attractive man. He had everything that we're promised in life will make us happy. And it went to his head and he began to play the fool. And he destroyed himself and the kingdom of, of Israel that, that ultimately suffered under his demise. And so we're going to see something this week that is finally going to explain <laughs> the topic title of this, this season, the Kings of Compromise, because it is the compromises of Solomon that lead to the destruction of the kingdom. It is the compromises of our lives that will lead to the destruction of our lives. It is the compromises of our nation as it does the exact same thing we see ancient Israel do here in 1 Kings that will lead to the destruction of this country as it has occurred in empires and countries before the United States of America. So we do well to listen to the text today in 1 Kings chapter 11. And with that in mind, let's go through the text. Yes, uh, through the text, the downfall of King Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 11. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them or you can just watch and listen to what I have to read from the text myself. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely... They will turn your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Verse 3, he had 700 wives. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. And his wives, what? Turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. This is a shot across the bow. This is the warning of the ages. Societies do not last. Civilizations do not last when sexual immorality uh, comes from the top and filters down through to the regular people in a kingdom. We are seeing that in our culture. We are seeing that in our country. We are seeing the redefinition of marriage. Of course, this has been happening for over 15 years now, I think, around we are seeing the um, celebration of abortion. We are seeing the uh, 
transgender uh, rise, the ideology of transgenderism rise in our culture. A lot of people wonder what is going on. The Bible has the answer for that. The Bible has the answer for that. And the answer is in King Solomon's life because before King Solomon uh, does what King Solomon does here in chapter 11, which is an appropriately numbered chapter, as chapter 11 is a term for bankruptcy. There is moral bankruptcy here in the kingdom and in Solomon's heart. But before chapter 11, King Solomon was experiencing incredible increase in gold and wealth and incredible fame. Uh, the queen of Sheba comes to visit him. The kings of all of the nations are seeking audience with him. He is experiencing incredible power as he is importing endless amounts of chariots and horses from Egypt and other nations to solidify his power among the ancient kingdoms of his time. By all estimations, on the outside, King Solomon's kingdom looks impenetrable, impervious to destruction uh, or demise, but such is not the case. King Solomon's demise that begins here in chapter 11 is a warning shot to us, to you, to me, not to mess with the things that he messed with. What does King Solomon mess with? Well, right there in the first sentence, he what? Loved many foreign women. He does not love a few. He loves many. Now, he had already had a marital alliance with the king uh, of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter. But now the text uh, highlights the fact that he embraced Moabite and Ammonite women. These are the daughters of Lot. Daughters of Lot. Lot has uh, this sexual affair with his daughters. He got drunk. His daughters actually perpetrated the affair. Uh, and they were the sons of Lot, Moab, and Ammonite, and, and the Ammonites through his daughters. Then it references the Edomites. These would be the sons or the daughters of uh, Esau, the Sidonians, the Hittite women. These would be the leftover nations that Israel did not destroy when they were commanded to destroy when they came into the land of Egypt under Joshua. They did not, they did not wipe out and thoroughly devote to destruction all the nations that God told them to destroy. And God warned them, if you don't wipe them out, they will be thorns in your side. They will lead you away from me. And here we see it starts at the top because it is Solomon himself who is starting to initiate uh, marital alliances, um, family unions with these pagan nations that the Israelites left in the land um, at the conquest of Joshua. Verse 2 makes notice, makes mention that these were from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. That's back in Deuteronomy. We shared about that last time. They will what? Look at, by the way, the word here. Surely they will turn your heart after other gods. Notice the word surely. There is no maybe about it. There is not a, well, it could happen. Well, you know, you could mess around with these relationships, but just, you know, check your heart, make sure you're strong, make sure you're going to church, make sure you're not totally engaged in this. No, no, no. They will surely turn your heart after other gods. There is no if, ands, or buts about it. If you are a single person listening to this content right now, my sincerest prayer for you, if you are a Christian, is that you pay attention to that word surely because that one is huge. You cannot mess around with interfaith marriages, interfaith marriages. Now, a lot of people think, and this is a common uh, attack on the Bible, that the Bible is anti-interracial marriage. Now, the, the term interracial, first of all, is a, is a misnomer. We are all one race. Now, there are different shades and ethnicities and tongues and languages, sure. 
but we are all one race. We're all descended from Adam. And by implication, we're all descended from Noah. So technically, we're all biologically related. It's just a different shade of our skin. But if inter-ethnic relationships, right? Is the Bible against it? Look at what God says. Don't intermarry with these other nations. So the, the, um, the biblical critic loves to come along and say, the Bible is so antiquated. Look at it. It forbids intermarriage with people from a different nationality. No, my friend. It, in, it forbids explicitly intermarriage with people from another religion, another faith, or an abominable faith, because there's only one true faith, the faith in Yahweh, the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The scriptures are clear, Old Testament, New Testament, and they are consistent in, if you intermarry with non-believers, they will turn your heart from other, away from God and toward other gods, toward pagan activities, pagan rituals, pagan lifestyles, godless lifestyles. Notice what it says, too, about Solomon. It says, and it uses the word, he clung. He clung to these women in love. The word clung here is dakab in Hebrew. It's the same word found in Genesis 2.24 when it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and cling or hold fast or cleave to his wife. Dakab is all the same word. So what, what Solomon does is he actually does what God commands for a husband to do with a wife but he does it with pagan idolaters. He does it with pagan women from pagan idolatrous nations. And the implication is that you could be doing the right thing with the wrong people, as Solomon exhibits here for us in 1 Kings chapter 11. There is a, a clinging, there is a decab reality in marriage. When you marry someone, you are marrying their whole person. You are not just marrying their body or their mind or their job, or their talents. You are marrying them heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they will have an effect on you. So if you're single, please make the decision now, young people. I am begging you. I will not marry a non-believer. I will not even date a non-believer. And I know I know some of you are saying, well, I, I've seen Christians marry non-Christians uh, and, and their marriages are just as bad. I get it. There are always exceptions to every rule, but you will do yourself and your future children and grandchildren a great service if you make this decision now and lessen your chances of heartache in your future and in your child rearing if you make a decision that you will not date, you will not even flirt with a non-believer. I know, I know it's hard because there's more non-believers than believers. I get it. And your church, it can be sometimes this, you know, it can be sometimes this highly competitive environment for a few young people in your church who are single and devoted to the Lord. These people are few and far between. But the lesson is not diminished. The point is not diminished. They will have an effect on your heart. They will turn your heart. Look, I, I just, I bring attention to you again that this is Solomon because Solomon was the wisest, most knowledgeable man in his time. And even he was not immune to the influence of pagan idolaters upon his heart. He was turned away from the Lord through his immoral relationships with other women. And I just want to also point out that it says in verse 4, this happened when? When Solomon was old. So I get it. Some of you young people are like, well, I'm young and I'm strong in the Lord and I'll stay strong in the Lord. Yeah, but you're going to get old. You're going to get older. 
and I'm getting older and I, I, I'm, I'm, tr I'm trying to say this more often because I'm seeing the trajectory of life better now, I think in my mid forties than ever before. And I hope to see it better in my fifties and mid fifties as well. Only, only life experience can, can teach you some things. The older you get, the harder it will be to not let um, your closest relationships affect you. And this is what is exhibited here in Solomon. Sure, he stayed true when he was young and spry and full of energy and life and zest. And he stood strong for the Lord. But as he made these alliances and these relationships a part of his life, he grew older and weaker and spiritually started to diminish his strength, his capacity to hold on to these foreign wives and not let them turn his heart against the Lord. That capacity lessened as he grew older. And so it will be with you. Look, the, the, the basic point that I want to make is, is what you allow to cultivate or what you cult, let me say it like this, what you cultivate in your young days could cost you in your older days. So if you're going to cultivate sexual relationships outside of marriage, it's going to cost you in your marriage. If you cultivate intimate relationships with non-believers, it will cost you when you're raising your children, when you're deciding about what you're going to do on Sundays as a family, when you're going to, what you're going to do, what celebrate, what celebrations, what holidays are you going to celebrate? How are you going to send them to school? How are you going to educate these children, right? So many, so many single people, I see them, you, you, you don't see the forest for the trees. You, you don't see the longevity of your life. You only see the immediacy of your decisions and you think, okay, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe, but, but you, you aren't. If Solomon wasn't, you aren't. If Solomon, with his wisdom and power and riches, could not avoid this, this uh, decay, this spiritual deterioration in his life, who do you think you are? Listen to God's word and the warnings of Scripture. This is, by the way, a, an illustration of how powerful the flesh is. How powerful is it? His wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart, not only was it turned away, it was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Let me illustrate for you a point here. The flesh is totally powerless against sin. You, in and of yourself, are totally powerless against sin. You cannot and you will not avoid sin. You will not avoid sin. There, there is no... Um, in your own flesh, I'm saying, okay, there is no uh, inoculation against sin's power over your flesh. The, 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 the writer uh, Paul in Romans 7.24 says, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? I have this body attached to my spirit and mind that will destroy me. I need deliverance. I need someone stronger than the flesh, someone stronger than my willpower. Who is that? That is our true and better Solomon, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> okay. Just another point, too, here um, about Solomon that we are going to touch on, and then we'll get back to. Uh, just notice that it says that his heart was not true to the Lord, as was the heart of his father, David. And you say, well, didn't David commit immorality and, and godlessness? Yes. Let me get back to that in just a moment. We're going to continue, though, into the next verse, if you guys don't mind. Verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Okay, I told you we'd return to that. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, and 
uh, I'm sorry, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices and sacrifice to their gods. <laughs> Can we just examine for a moment that uh, what sin does, what compromise does in our lives is it has babies. It multiplies. So he goes after the Ashtoreth, one god, right? Then Milcom, another god. Uh, then it says later, Kamosh. Then Molech. By the way, Molech was the god that required the death of your children. You would burn your children alive on the altar to Moloch. It was also in the form of a bull, and it was a symbol of financial blessing. I said this on the deep end a couple of weeks ago that it's no wonder that the bull is a symbol of Wall Street and financial gain and how many people commit abortion, sacrificing their children on the altar of financial gain. We see this, this parallel in our day, although not in the open-aired altars of ancient you know, um, landscape, but in the behind closed doors of, you know, sanitized clinics and abortion clinics. Uh, but anyway, the point is, is that there's a multiplication of idolatry. You will let a little idolatry in, it multiplies, it grows. And one sin, one idolatrous uh, issue in your life leads to another. I don't say these things to depress you. I don't say these things to hurt you or harm you or emotionally distress you. I say these things to help protect you because there is a protection to the gods of our age. There is a protection to idolatry. And it is noted here in verse six. Let's put it back up here on the screen. It says this, that Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father had done. Again, you say, wait a second. David committed adultery. He had Uriah murdered. He was a immoral man. He censused the people. He also committed other atrocities. He had many wives. What are you saying? How can we say that David you know, was wholly devoted to the Lord because there is a difference and there's a picture that I want you to see here um, that delineates the difference between Solomon and David. And that is the trajectory of their lives and the difference. And I just want to illustrate this by putting a graph of David's life. So David's life is a lot like our life, like my life. It's a roller coaster. You're up, you're down, you slide into obedience, then you go through seasons of disobedience, right? That's what we see in David's life. And, and, and what happens is David makes comebacks, but he also slips into disobedience. Well, Solomon, his trajectory is a little bit different. He ascends through obedience, but then slowly but surely, he just descends into sin and complete disregard for God's word. What was the difference between David and Solomon? There was one simple difference. It's called repentance. When David was challenged by God's word, when he was confronted by Nathan, when he was confronted uh, over his disobedience and sin, what, what, what do we see? We see that David repented. He turned back to the Lord, and it was always that way. What you don't see in Solomon's life is repentance, and that's going to be the difference in your life and my life. You might be on a roller coaster ride, spiritually speaking, in your life. Can I just tell you that repentance is the key? Really, the difference between David and Solomon is that David confessed and repented and Solomon never did. He never turned back to the Lord. He let his wives come into his life and one sin led to another. Uh, Ashtoreth led to Milcom, which led to Kamosh, which led to Molech. And just a couple of um, big points about these these uh, these I, I, these gods that he worshipped. Ashtoreth was the principal goddess of the Phoenicians. Uh, she was a fertility goddess. It, to worship her required sexual intercourse in her temples. 
where or her shrines. Molech was again the the god that you sacrificed your children for for financial gain. Uh, also notice in the text that it says that he built high places for all of his foreign wives. So what you see is a multiplication of immorality. One of the themes of this season of the deep dive is what we are seeing now in America 2021 or 2022, sorry, almost 2023. <laughs> what we are seeing now, we have seen before. This is how a culture ultimately corrupts itself and later is destroyed. And mind you, it will take about 300 more years before Solomon and, well, not Solomon, but the nation of Israel utterly falls into the hands of his enemies. 300 years. So does America have 300 years left? I don't know. Does God escalate uh, America's judgment? I, ha I have no idea. That's in God's hands. What we do know from ancient times here in Israel is that they're already making these decisions that we are making as a culture in our time. God will still have patient endurance with this nation for 300 years. So for the doomsdayers out there, and I get it, we, we love to say <laughs> that America's last days are ahead. Yeah, they are. We, they just might be farther away than we realize because God is tremendously gracious, giving us a chance to repent and turn back to him. And in your own personal life, right? You've got to watch out for the, idol the, 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 the idolatry of the flesh because it will ultimately destroy and cost you. John Owen, a Puritan preacher, famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Instead of building these altars, right? Instead of building these altars, Solomon should have been destroying these altars. Instead of following his wife's wives, he should have been leading his wives. Of course, he should have only had one wife. We have talked about this repeatedly this season. Deuteronomy 17 makes very clear that God's king must not multiply wives. But Solomon ignores all of that. He ignored everything that God said concerning Israel's kings, and it led to his ultimate defeat. Let's continue on in the text. Verse 9, it says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Verse 11, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So even here in the judgment of God on Solomon's life, we see God's response. Number one, anger. People don't want to hear this anymore. I get it. This is not positive preaching. This is not motivational speaking that we see living in many of the pulpits of America's churches, but it is biblical truth that God responds to sin with anger. He's angry at sin because sin will destroy you. It will wreck you and your life. It will wreck nations. It will wreck communities. Then notice the reference here in God appearing to Solomon twice. It says that he spoke to him. This time, uh, I think this is now the fourth time that we see God appearing to or speaking to Solomon. The first when he asked for wisdom, the second at the completion of the temple, the third at the end of his prayer, and then the fourth now here when he is starting to abandon the precepts of the Lord. And it's important to understand that there's a, there's a spiritual truth to whom much is given, much is required. The more we know of God's word, the more God holds us accountable to it. Now, that is not an excuse for you not to know God's word. It's just saying 
that you've got to do what you know. You've got to listen to God's voice and you've got to be responsible to the truth that he has given you because that is a sacred trust that God has put into your life. And then notice also what is going to happen to the kingdom. It says this, um, I will tear the kingdom away from you and will give it to your servant. The word tear here, rip apart. Basically what's going to happen is there's going to be a tearing away, not of all the kingdom, as it says here in verse 13, but one tribe will remain. Ultimately, two tribes will, will remain, or at least one and a half tribes, because there's some debate about Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. But the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, will be the last remaining tribe that will belong to this kingdom, and the ten and a half other tribes will be torn away. What is that? What do we call that? There's a word for that. It's called division. It's called division, and the devil is the god of division, the author of division. He loves to divide. When we follow his ways, we end up with division. Some people are so confused about our country's current state, how divided we are, how hostile we are growing toward one another, how people no longer talk to friends, family members because of political allegiances. It's not a political division. It's a spiritual division. And, and what we're seeing here is that a country that has grown exponentially prosperous, America, exponentially strong, America, exponentially immoral, particularly sexually immoral, America, you're going to see more and more division. Again, what we see now, we have seen before. And finally, here in this text, we see the mercy of God. God is not going to thoroughly obliterate Solomon's kingdom. He's going to judge it. He's going to separated. He's going to divide it, but he's going to keep Judah under the reign of Solomon and his lineage to honor David. I think about this text where it says, yet for the sake of, of David, your father, okay? God says, I'm not going to do a total, uh, you know, annihilation on the kingdom. I'm going to preserve one tribe. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, because God needed or God was going to, through David, going to provide the Christ child, the ultimate true son of David, to bring salvation to the world. But number two, God honored David's honor for God. And sometimes I think people don't get this. You look at people's lives, and they are sometimes the children of people who honored God, and, and their lives don't honor God, but they're blessed. And... <laughs> There's something called residual blessing, generational residual blessing, that a parent's honor for God will residually bless their children, even when their children don't bless God. This is what we're seeing here right in this text. It is the proof text for that. And you see it a time and time again where God says, look, this guy honored me. I'm going to honor his progeny because he honored me. This is a warning for those who see their, their lives as blessed or prosperous, but they don't give any time or, or thought to God. That's not necessarily because of you. Your, your parents might have been the reason for your blessing. There is a generational quotient to life with God. What does God say to Moses? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not Abraham only. There is a generational quotient. I regard fathers and sons and grandsons as one. They each affect the other. So back to you and your generation, the best thing that you can do for your children is honor God. The best thing that you can do for your grandchildren is honor God. There will be a residual blessing, like a wave that will crash on the ocean sand, on the, on the beach's sand. 
there will be a residual blessing upon those beyond you as you honor God in your generation. I hope that helps someone. Anyway, we got to continue on or we'll never get through this text. Verse 14, and the Lord raised up an adversary. Wow. Just consider this statement. The Lord, noun, raised up, verb, an adversary object against Solomon, direct object, indirect object. I'm sorry. So God does this. Hey, dad, the Edomite. He was of the royal house of Edom. For when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. This is referencing uh, a passage in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 8. It says this, um, for Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. Verse 17, but Hadad fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants. Hadad still being a little child, they set out from Midian and came to Paran and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Taphnus, the queen. And the sister of Taphnus bore him Genubath, his son, whom Taphnus weaned in Pharaoh's house. When Genubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh, uh, it says this, but when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, only let me depart. Okay, I read all those texts because I want to show you a little bit of an illustration here from the text. This guy, Hadad, becomes a thorn in Solomon's side, but he had been groomed right under the auspices of Pharaoh's kingdom, who had an alliance with Solomon by marriage. And as Solomon departs from the Lord and his word and follows the pagan idolatry of his wives, God sort of removes the protective covering there and raises up this guy, Hadad, from Egypt to come in and be a military thorn against Solomon and against the people of Israel. The point is that there are things that God protects us from as we obey and honor him that we aren't even aware of. And then as we disobey, he sort of lifts the protective covering he sort of allows those things that he was keeping at bay in our lives. Because listen, if you're going to follow God, you're going to have enemies. If you're going to follow Christ, especially, you're going to be hated, okay? Uh, and there's going to be potential disaster all around you, but God protects you. He, he is your guard. He is your refuge, the scriptures say. But when we start to obey, uh, disobey and abandon him, that protective covering is opened up. This, by the way, is an act of grace on God's part. I know it doesn't sound it, but it is. Because what these adversaries are supposed to do, they're supposed to wake up Solomon to his spiritual uh, condition. They're supposed to wake Solomon up. Say, Look, something's wrong. My heart with God is not right. When God allows discipline to come into our lives, punishment, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about. It says that he punishes or disciplines those that he loves, that he might stir us back to the path of righteousness, right? This is what God is trying to do with Solomon. And, and, and again, it says that God does this. God raises up this adversary against Solomon. Let me go back to the text for a second in verse 14 because the word for adversary in Hebrew is Satan. That's what the word means. God allows Satan to crack through Solomon's defenses. And this is Hadad the Edomite. 
Edom is in the south. Now that's going to be important for just a moment, in just a moment, because I'm going to show you what verse uh, 24 says or last half of verse 23. Now this is verse 24. Here's what it says. God also raised up an adversary, Satan, to him, Rezan, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master Hadadizar, king of Zobah, and he gathered men about him and became the leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did, and he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. Let me tell you about this guy. So you have um, Rezan, who is from Damascus, the capital of what? Syria. And previously, the, the, other, the other enemy was named who? Was named, uh, hold on a second, Hadad, right? So Hadad the Edomite and Rezan from Damascus. Why do I point out these two names? Because Hadad the Edomite from the south, Rezan the, from Syria from the north. God is raising up enemies to, uh, for Israel to both the north and the south. In other words, God is trying to wake Solomon up from every angle. You know our lives will get to that point sometimes where God will try to wake us up at every angle in our world. When we start to see things falling apart on each end and we just can't seem to make anything work, <laughs> you might need to stop praying for solutions and start looking for repentance, confession. What do I need to confess? What sin is going on that I am not aware of? Not, that does not mean that every evil or bad thing that happens is because of sin. Sometimes the things that happen to our lives that are bad are to bring glory to God, to bring uh, you know, the, 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 the glory of Christ's name. I think about the man who was blind in John chapter 9. The disciples immediately want to know, was it his parents' sin? Was it his sin? Who sinned? Jesus said, neither. This is not about his sin or his parents' sin. This is so that the glory of God might be made manifest. But in John chapter 5, there's a guy who is sitting by the pool of Siloam who can't walk. And Jesus heals him and then finds him later in that same text in John 5 and says, now stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. So there is a both and. And I will tell you this after studying the scriptures exhaustively for years, I will tell you that more often than not, the things that are harmful or hurtful to our lives happen because of sin more often than just God wants to glorify himself through our lives. I mean, I, yes, God will glorify himself through your hardships. And he does that on a repeated basis in so many ways that we don't even realize. But when there is specific harm and hurt and pain and agony it is God's way of stirring us up back to repentance. He doesn't want us to wander into the traffic of sinfulness and idolatry. He doesn't want us uh, straddling the cliff over which we might fall. And in grace, we'll send adversaries, we'll send hardship against our lives to stir us up and turn us back to him in repentance. Okay, uh, verse 26, ignore the reference up there on the top, but this is verse 26. Look at this. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and Ephraimite of Zerada, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruiah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able. When Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Okay, so now this is a man 
that comes not from without, but from where? Within the nation. This is a very important, um, co- uh, a very important note here. The first two enemies come from without. The third enemy comes from within. And it was a man with whom Solomon had placed significant trust. He saw that he was well-able. Though The word here, well-able, could also be translated in Hebrew physically impressive. He was a strong, mighty, warrior-looking fellow. He was put in charge of forced labor. This would be one of Solomon's inner circle friends. And God uses this man now. He is going to be raised up from within as an enemy of Solomon to again, stir Solomon to repentance and ultimately divide the kingdom. Look what it says here in verse 29. At that time, when Joabim went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment. The reason for that new garment mentioned is important in just a second. And the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. Remember, there are 12 tribes of Israel. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I've chosen of all the tribes of Israel." Because they have forsaken and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Kamash, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Okay, so what happens? This prophet, again, now this is the reason for a prophet doing this, is because it's pointing to the fact that God is allowing this to happen. God is raising up these enemies and these adversaries to stir Solomon to repentance, but he will not repent. And almost now, because it is an internal division that is starting to happen, an internal conflict with Jeroboam being one of Solomon's leaders who will now be taking over the northern, the 10 northern tribes of Israel, even now it's almost as if it is beyond repair. Solomon's lack of repentance from the two external adversaries has now led to an internal division and what will become a civil separation between the 10 northern tribes, which will become Israel, and the two southern tribes, which will become Judah. Again, Benjamin straddles the fence. It's a smaller tribe. It goes north, it goes south. So that's why there are 10 deliberately named northern tribes and two somewhat named southern tribes or southern kingdom tribes that from this point on in 1st and 2nd Kings will will be the narrative going forward. We will, from this point on, be talking about what happens in the north and what happens in the south. And remember, the southern kingdom is Judah. That is God's uh, special tribe through which Jesus Christ will come. And he will preserve Judah. And Judah will have far more righteous kings than northern tribes. And God will preserve Judah longer than the northern tribes. But both, both kingdoms, the northern and the south, are both headed toward destruction over the next three to 400 years. Uh, it's just amazing uh, similarities to world history, empires that have come and gone before America and where America might be right now. Verse 34, nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand. I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, uh, my servant whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hands. So this will not happen again, like he said to Solomon himself. It will not happen to Solomon's day. It will happen in Rehoboam, his son's day. And we'll give it to you, 10 tribes. Yet to his son, I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may, also have a, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. Now watch what happens in this next text. This is incredible. 
if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David, my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now this is incredible because God is saying, look, I'm looking for someone to serve me. And even if you, Jeroboam, who I have decided to use as an adversary to Solomon because Solomon has rejected me, if you will obey me, I will build you a sure house and I will, I will establish you as I established David. Think about this. This is the importance, okay, that God is uh, emphasizing in the word here of making sure our hearts don't wander from him. <laughs> He is willing to bless anyone who will obey him, even from under the auspices of the greatest, wisest, most blessed and prosperous king he has ever had on the throne of Israel. He will raise up someone as an adversary to him and then bless that guy if that guy will put God first. My friends, I'm emphasizing this because your life is at stake. Your future, your blessing, your prosperity is at stake. Obedience to God, trusting in God, putting the Lord first in your life is the best thing that you can do for yourself. <laughs> There's no going wrong when you serve and trust the Lord first and foremost. Okay, let me put this up on the map, uh, this map up on the screen so you can get a picture of this. Uh, what you have here is the southern kingdom of Judah. That is Benjamin and Judah basically uh, aligned as the southern kingdom, and then all the northern tribes here, which will be called Israel. And again, I just stipulate all this because going forward, okay, we will be talking about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom uh, down here in the south. And, and we just have to have this picture. Now, a couple of pictures, a couple of uh, important geographical realities here. Just notice to the north is Syria. They will become the Assyrians. And they will eventually, toward the end of 2 Kings, they will come in and invade Israel in the north. Uh, over here to the west of Judah will be the Philistines and uh, will be the Edomites and the Moabites. And these nations to the east and west of Judah will come and they will infect Judah to the south. The point being that all of these nations... These nations should have been driven out by the people of Israel. And because they did not take God's word seriously, they did not deal with these pagan nations. The pagan nations will come in and affect them and ultimately lead to their demise. What's the point for us as modern day American Christians or modern day Christians, period? The point is this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There are things that you need to repent of. There might be a lack of forgiveness. There might be an addiction. There might be... A, a trend toward lying or gossiping or materialism or lust or pride uh, or arrogance in your life. These things that if you do not come to God and say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, have authority over this area of my life. I renounce this sin. I hate this sin and I confess this sin to you. Put this to death in my life. If that is not actively happening in your life. You are waiting for those sins to start coming in and affecting you and leading to long-term trouble and toil, not only in your body, but in your mind and in your heart and in your spirit. 
And these texts, again, are not, they're not positive uh, motivational texts, but man, they are life-saving texts here in 1 Kings. The picture of Solomon descending so rapidly, so quickly through his lust, through his marital alliances is a, is a warning shot for us in 21st century um, world and 21st century America. <laughs> Take care of these things. Don't let them in because it is about your future and your life and your peace with God in the future. So let's sum up what the scripture says here at the end of Solomon's life. And this will be a familiar epitaph for each successive kings in both the north and southern kingdoms going forward. Verse 41, now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of Acts of the book of Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Again, we're going to hear that same epitaph over every king going forward. Now the cycle begins. Now we start to hit the main theme of what this entire season of the deep dive is about. Way back in July when I was praying about what this season should be, where, where should we go? And I was looking at culture, looking at what's happening right now, considering a lot of the content that we discussed on the deep end, um, the, the moral decay that is so prevalent in our society right now. I thought this, this text, these two books, first and second Kings are perfect pictures representing what's happening now and how we need to respond to it as God's people. I don't want to just give you a prognosis of the problems of our society. I want to give you a diagnosis on how do we solve this in our own lives and protect ourselves from the decay that is prevalent around us. And with that in mind, let's tap into truth. Okay, so how did it all start? Let's remember how it all started. Verse one, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Because of the women and the sexual desires and and of course, the political alliance desire, the power desires, the, the lust of the flesh, the, the pride of life, what he wanted for himself, what ended up happening is he, would, he ended up putting God on the back burner of his life. His heart was not devoted to God. Today, young men are especially suspect, are especially um, uh, prime suspects for the sin of Solomon here in 1 Kings 11. Yes, young men, young men. And I say this because today young men can basically pretend to be virtual Solomons. We can, be, we can pretend to be virtual Solomons in the ways that the world offers us through these devices, uh, social media, superficial connection. Uh, we can accumulate a kingdom unto ourselves filled with followers, likes, admirers, lovers, uh, virtual lovers. Pornography has a big part of this self-serving apps like tinder uh match uh whatever you know these dating apps where we can judge people with a swipe within a half a second regarding how they appear to us we can we can pretend men men can pretend and women yes i understand but men particularly can pretend to be virtual solemns there is an epidemic in our country with regards to young men uh, the statistics all bear this out, and this is why I'm, I'm, I'm going here, because we're going to get to something that we've got to deal with in the church. Uh, women are outnumbering men in the workforce. 
They are outnumbering men in completing college educations. Uh, the trend is looking more and more dismal for men in the future. Uh, what, what is happening to men? What is going on? There is uh, a quest now in the social sciences to find out why are men leaving the workforce at an alarming rate? Why are they not re-entering the workforce coming out of the pandemic? What's going on with men in our culture? Well, the reason the, the, the problem is <laughs> the Solomon syndrome. We can virtually be Solomons in and of ourselves, to ourselves and with ourselves, young men. Porn is destroying young men's hearts and minds. Pleasure seeking, video games and play are becoming the epitome of one's value and life. We are raising up a Solomon generation of boys who can be served and pleased in virtually any number of ways that do not matter in society, that do not produce significant impact, virtuous impact on a society. We have sacrificed the virtuous for the virtual. And women are suffering as a result. Women are far lonelier than they've ever been in recent generations. They have lost a significance to their lives. They are suffering anxiety, depression, and uh, just emotional, mental illness is destroying an entire generation of young women. Why? Because, and I, I truly believe this, the sexualization, the pornification, the fornication, and the pleasure-seeking that has been uh, pumped into our young men. I read an excellent article on this website, the Ethics for Public Poli the Ethics and Public Policy Center website, you can check it out at eppc.org. The article's title is "A Science-Based Case for Ending the Porn Epidemic," and basically, this article does a thorough job unpacking all the destructive elements of pornography in a person's brain. Uh, they talk about the fact that porn, porn addiction is like a drug addiction in the brain. You need more of it to get a lesser high each time you use it. That means a man who is given a constant stream of sexual images and high definition through their smartphone even today. They can carry it around in their pockets, okay? Gone is the day when you actually had to hide your computer screen. Gone is the day when you actually had to go to the convenience store. What? Ancient history when you had to embarrassingly take the Playboy from the back of the magazine rack that was covered with a, a plastic bag and, and check out with it and, and be seen. That, those are ancient days right now in the in the palm of one's hands we get to play solomon we get to play first kings 11 solomon and so a man given a constant stream of sexual images develops his thirst for something that a wife can never provide and he gets this for free without any work on his part the article goes on talks about the effects of our, uh, pornography it, it causes erectile dysfunction in young men <clears throat> an increasing pandemic amongst our young is the inability of a young man to do sexual things that a young man should do with a wife. It uh, alters sexual orientation. Uh, there is a stunning rise, uh, almost a doubling in, percentage, in percentages of seeking out transgender pornography because of the influence of pornography on the, on the male brain. Uh, with 1% to 14% of the young male, uh, the young male population has grown from 1% to 14% uh, being affected with sexual inability in the marriage bed. Up to 37%, by the way. So 14 to 37% uh, of young men cannot perform sexually with their wives because of this porn epidemic. 
Studies show sexual aggression is on the rise. A diminished view of women is a tragic result. Porn use nearly doubles the divorce rate among those who participate in it. It causes young women to feel less desirable, leading to anxiety and depression. A British study found that children under 10 now account for 22% of the online porn consumption for those under 18. Think about that. One in, almost one in four children are under 10 and consuming uh, uh, porn on the internet. Most important, the article talks about how it causes brain damage. It leads to terrible, uh, terrible choices. One of the effects uh, is that the brain, re through repeated use of pornography, enlarges the prefrontal cortex. They call this hypofrontality. It manifests in a decline in executive function in the brain. Executive function includes our decision-making faculties, our ability to control impulses, to evaluate risk, reward, danger. This leads to a decreased academic performance, decreased working memory performance, decreased decision-making ability, higher impulsivity, lower emotion regulation, higher risk aversion, lower altruism, lower rates of neurosis. I'm sorry, higher rates of neurosis. All these symptoms are related to hypofrontality, which is, again, a decline in executive function, which basically wrecks your life. That's, that's what I'm saying. Let me sum this up by saying men are leaving the workforce. They're not graduating college. They're not performing. They're not settling down. They're not creating babies. They're not having children. They're not staying uh, celibate. They're not uh, disciplined. They are higher in depression and anxiety, and they're not giving. They're takers by and large. Why? The porn epidemic upon our society. The reason is the young, the modern man now no longer has any um, impetus to do the traditional things required for sexual intimacy in generations past. Again, the Solomon effect. Solomon did not have to pursue sexual romance with one woman. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had a, a virtual porn harem for himself. And his life and his demise is a picture for young men today. You have this virtual harem that eliminates the need for you to do the things necessary to experience sexual intimacy in times past, i.e. hard work, providing for a wife, developing social skills such as going up to a woman, asking her out, facing rejection, fearing rejection, developing these skills, right? One of the greatest skills you can develop, young men, is the skill to endure rejection. And you are being robbed of that because you no longer, at least according to statistics, uh, ask out women nearly as much as your predecessors. Why? Because you don't need to. You don't need to do the things necessary to, to achieve sexual intimacy, which is, by the way, God-given desire, a godly desire, sexual intimacy with a wife. But pornography has caused that God-given desire to go haywire, and now you no longer have to do the things necessary to better yourself to get there. And it is wreaking havoc on your life. The, the cracks in Solomon's kingdom are shown to us in full color in 1 Kings 11. Why? To speak to this generation, this porn-addicted, fornicating generation of we won't get married, we'll shack up, I want to play the field, I want to experience sex with several different partners before I settle down, I want to have fun and enjoy my life before I take responsibility for a wife and children. Let me just tell you, there is no greater adventure in life than a wife and children. There's no greater adventure. It will strain you. It will, it will stress you. It will challenge you. But most importantly, it will better you. 
All the statistics in the social sciences show us that a married man who is committed to one woman and his children for life are happier, healthier, mentally stable, emotionally stable, able to succeed in work and in life far better than their single or sexually driven counterparts. And the worst part of all of this porn culture is that the women suffer the most. They have to work for themselves. They have to pretend that clerking for a law office is as beneficial or as life-giving as raising a child. They have to provide for their families more often than men. They also have to provide consequence-free sex to men who won't commit. Uh, they provide this consequence-free sex through abortion and birth control. And those two issues are large voting issues for young women. Why? Because they know that there's the, that's the only way basically to intimacy, to any kind of relationship with a porn-addicted culture of men. And the ultimate consequence, ladies and gentlemen, will be our culture. An addiction to sexual immorality is asking your country to collapse. Case in point, 1 Kings chapter 11. What we are seeing now, we have seen before. And I cannot stress this enough to the young men who are listening to me, to the fathers who are raising young men, to, um, to the older men who might also be struggling with this. You've got to watch out for this immorality in your life. You've got to renounce it, reject it, and walk away from it because it will cost you. It will cost your country. All, all that we are seeing, the divisiveness, the, the, the exploitation of women, the uh, rape culture effect on college campuses, these are consequences of playing the virtual Solomon game. And our country is at stake. And your life is at stake. And I would advise you to see the downturn in Solomon's life and run. Run into God's arms. Receive the power of the Holy Spirit and follow Christ and not this culture. There was a guy in the Bible who warned us against this. He warned us against this rather strongly. Ironically, his name was Solomon. <laughs> Solomon wrote in Proverbs 5, 1, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman, woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. And King Lemuel will say in Proverbs 31, 3, Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. Incredible that Solomon in his middle age forgot his own advice. Again, it points to the fact that we need the Holy Spirit, friend. We cannot win this battle in the flesh. We cannot win this battle with uh, willpower uh, or avoidance. We need the Holy Spirit to come in and take ownership of us and leadership of us and, and change our hearts. As Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Only Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit can save me from me. Fundamentally, I want to tell you, tapping into truth here, protect yourself from the spirit of this age. You don't have to follow the Solomon effect. You don't have to be one of these, one of these guys. You just don't. You, you can stand against this. And you can stand against this by, by understanding how does a nation destroy itself? 
Well, there are stages in Solomon's demise. The ambition of power, which was evidenced in his desire for slaves and Egyptian alliances. The chase for fortune, ships for gold, going down to gain gold from Ophir. The frivolity of intellect. When, when Sheba, queen, the queen of Sheba shows up and he just kind of shows off for her and it, and it kind of spreads and he starts to think of his intellect and his wisdom as a self-serving talent instead of something that is given to him for the leadership and, and benefit of God's people. The pursuit of pleasure uh, through concubines, the fornication of the populace through the pagan shrines that Solomon himself erected on the east side of Jerusalem opposite the Temple Mount. Uh, it's an amazing picture of what's happening in our culture today. The signs, let me leave you guys with this. The signs that a nation is in dis- demise, um, there are several signs and they all take place in Solomon's life and they're taking place in our culture right now. What do we see? We see spiritual backsliding or I call it religious syncretism. In other words, the number of believers, true believers in this country is fading, fading fast. Church attendance is plummeting. But religious syncretism, all faiths are equal, right? We don't, wanna, we don't want to just push Christianity on the culture. Don't say Merry Christmas, say Happy Holidays, uh, which is, in my opinion, the biggest hypocritical statement ever because we will gladly say Happy Thanksgiving or Happy Fourth of July around Native Americans. But we don't give a rip about offending Christians when we remove Merry Christmas and say Happy Holidays. Uh, it's just, <laughs> it's just amazing, uh, but it is, it is an intentional, uh, divisive, religious, syncretistic movement in our culture that is a symptom of spiritual backsliding in our world. Uh, we replace God with alternative priorities. So sports, entertainment, gambling, marijuana, social media, all these things now become God to us. Uh, We replace Orthodox faith with alternative faiths, new kinds of faiths, uh, new kinds of Christianity arising. There are are, uh, YouTube personalities, social media celebrities that are taking the Orthodox faith, distorting it, abandoning Orthodox Christian faith, and creating this alternate version of the Christian faith that more aligns with the culture of religious syncretism than with orthodox historical Christianity. We're seeing this rise in our culture. And then external enemies getting in. Uh, I look at the last 25 plus years of our country. You see terror from the outside attacking, getting into our country, 9-11, getting into our country through illegal immigration. And now we're seeing the internal, the heated division within society. Uh, that is starting to happen. Remember, those first two enemies of Solomon came from the outside. The, the third enemy, Jeroboam, comes from the inside. The same things that Solomon saw, Israel saw in ancient times, we are seeing today. And lastly, sexual liberation uh, to the extreme. Uh, from the top down, our government is espousing sexual confusion, corruption, and fornication. And there are no signs that it will slow down or let up anytime soon. Save yourself. Protect your spirit from the spirit of this age. Some headlines. I didn't do the deep end, so I'm going to give you some deep end content because it just supports the content of the Bible. 
Gallup reporting U.S. church membership falls below the majority for the first time. An article from the Atlantic, the war on Christmas is winning. The article stipulates that only 35% of Americans say that Christmas is a religious celebration. Christmas has Christ in the name. An Illinois satanic temple de- debuted its statue at the Capitol next to the nativity scene this past Christmas. Uh, the College Fix reporting that almost 40% of students identify as LGBTQ at liberal arts colleges. This is not going to slow down. The first Kings chapter 11 effect on our culture is ramping up. And my advice to you is don't be oblivious to it and protect your spirit from the spirit of this age. What does Paul say to the Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1? He says, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper. Among the saints, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, who has, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what, the, what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And that is what I've been trying to do on this episode of The Deep Dive. A difficult topic to be sure, but a topic that I believe will save you. Your children are at stake. Your grandchildren are at stake. Your country is at stake. And a bit of good news, a bit of... a. Um, Uh, a spiritual lesson to be learned. That little southern kingdom of Judah that God preserves for Solomon, it will be the minority, but it will be the far more blessed part of Israel's uh, narrative going forward because they will remain far more faithful than northern kingdoms. And so as modern-day Christians seeing our world capitulate to the fornification, the pornification of our culture, what should we do? We should embrace our minority status. We should wholeheartedly celebrate our values as Christ followers and not in any way feel less than or um, outdated or antiquated. No, no, no. God always has a people. He will protect, he will preserve them. And he preserves them through righteousness, through the power of the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that that is what happens for you. Thanks for joining me on the deep dive today. Support the channel if you will, Cash App Tim Hatch Live. If this content helps you at all, support the channel. Uh, if it doesn't, then go away. <laughs> I don't know why I said that, but anyway. Any amount gets the first chapter digitally delivered to you. Monthly givers get a free copy of the book Ending Emptiness that is coming out soon. I know some of you are asking when, I have no idea. It is in the publisher's hands at this point. I am looking forward to getting that content to you very soon. Next week, we will be back with the deep end and the deep dive. And I believe 10 questions with Tim. So I got three shows, three shows coming up next week. <laughs> Pray for me uh, that I will be able to continue this ministry. Uh, subscribe to the channel, like the video, help the algorithm uh, and get the word out if you believe this value, this content is valuable. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure to be with you. 
I pray this content helps you and God strengthens you and the Holy Spirit fills you as you seek to obey Christ. Take care.